this is the second to last message in our series on the Holy Spirit. Wednesday night, I will address the Holy Spirit and worship center renovation from Exodus chapter 35. It's in there, and I'm not making that up. It's remarkable what you find in the scripture about the great ministry of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me, though, this morning to John chapter 16 and beginning in verse number 7. John chapter 16 and verse number uh, 7. There are many advantages that we enjoy that oftentimes involve unpleasant moments. A childbirth happens to be one of them, at least for most, and uh, it it can involve some unpleasant moments. Um, uh, Aerospace travel has got to involve the unpleasantness of G-forces. There are many, many uh, positive advantages that involve some unpleasant experiences. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 16. He's talking about the great advantage of the Holy Spirit and says something remarkable in verse 7, almost unbelievable. You you may find it hard to believe what he says in John chapter 16, verse 7, but it will involve some unpleasantness as well. John chapter 16 and beginning in verse number 7. Here Jesus says, that the advantage of having the Holy Spirit is accompanied by some of the unpleasantness of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse number 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, can you imagine that ever being true? Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. He's been on the earth more than 30. And here he says, You and the rest of the world are going to have an advantage if I go away. Who could ever imagine a world being better off without Jesus than with him? Well, let's continue reading. He said, uh, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The word helper here in the Greek text is parakletos. It was used oftentimes in a legal setting for legal counsel or legal advice. And the Holy Spirit comforts us and helps us by giving us the kind of counsel that we need. And there's an awful lot about walking with God that comes out of a courtroom scene and a legal scene. And this is how the Holy Spirit helps us. But then he continues with that work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is much like that. And using a lot of courtroom terminology, he says in verse 8, And when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he... The Spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. You can enjoy incalculable advantages if you will embrace and cooperate with the unpleasant work of the Holy Spirit. Well, what are those advantages that he talks about here? Well, the first one is this. The Holy Spirit guides unbelievers 
to the conviction that humbles. The Holy Spirit is guiding the entire unbelieving world uh, by conviction that humbles. That's precisely what He's doing. Now, there is a problem with people receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. There's a problem with uh, not the gospel message itself, but how it is received, the good news of Christ in the world. And it's described in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. It says, You're dead in trespass, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you were walking according to the course of the prince of the power of the air, who is now the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the spirit of the enemy himself, the spirit of the devil himself, is actually working and operating in the hearts and souls of everyone outside Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And then the Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2.24 that Satan has taken unbelievers and held them captive to do his will. The Scripture then teaches that those outside of Christ are in an awful mess. In fact, before we came to Jesus... We were in an awful mess. We were incapable of repenting and placing faith in Jesus Christ. We were dead. We were bound by the devil. We were blind. And we were held captive to do His will. So how in the world can anyone ever turn to Jesus Christ in this mess of circumstances? Jesus offers remarkable hope. Beginning in verse number 8. He said, But when the Spirit is come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. This is a courtroom scene from verse 8 to verse number 11. And there are several moving pieces in a courtroom, and three of them appear here in this text. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict. That means can expose or can convince. There's a wide range of meaning, and every one of these things he says in verse 9, 10, and 11 fit a courtroom scene. So the Holy Spirit acts as a prosecutor to begin with. He is the one on behalf of God, the state of God, the kingdom of God, that cross-examines those who are guilty before God, and he exposes unbelievers. He says to them, you are not believing in Jesus Christ. You are guilty before God. Now, there's a little, there's a little bit of hope here found here in this text, or a subtle hope, and, and also some real serious business that we're dealing with. Look here in verse number 9. The Spirit will convict of sin because they do not believe in me. In other words, the Holy Spirit starts picking. He finds a scab, he picks it, and he begins to dig at it. Some lies, and he digs at those things. He, he digs at, um, uh, at lust, and he digs at insincerity. He, he deals with Sabbath breaking and not worshiping God with a whole heart. He deals with spiritual indifference, and here's why. He begins to deal with individual sins because they do not believe in me. Now that's the problem. Ladies and gentlemen, can I say something to you? God has absolutely no problem forgiving individual sins. Jesus Christ has bled. There is atonement. There is remedy. There is redemption. There is loving kindness. There is grace. And there is mercy from God for every individual sin that's ever been committed. God finds no problem doing that. He's eager to do it. He'd love nothing more than to cancel all your sins against Him. But there is one thing that God will not forgive, and that's unbelief. 
The truth is, is that belief and faith in Christ is what gets you to the grace of God. And if you do not access the grace of God in God's prescribed way, then there's no redemption. There's no atonement applied to you. There, there is no mercy. There, there is no grace to be had at all. So listen to me. Do not stay away from God. Do not keep away from Jesus Christ because of your sins. No, no matter how much of a mountain they have created. Don't do that. God can forgive. God is willing. The blood of the cross is sufficient to forgive all sins. The one thing that's going to keep you from God that would send a person to hell are not those sins, but unbelief in Jesus Christ. Well, I agree with all of this. No, 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 I'm talking about something different. I'm not talking about a mental exercise here. I'm talking more about entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ, realizing you're guilty and realizing Christ is the only hope and casting your poor soul at the Savior's feet. I mean, entrusting your life and eternity to Him, giving it all to Him, entrusting Him. That is, a lack of that is the only thing that will ever condemn you. Your sins won't condemn you forever. It's unbelief in the cross and resurrection and the person of Jesus Christ. And as a prosecutor, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit exposes all of this. But then He not only acts as a prosecutor, He acts as a defense attorney. Verse number 10 of righteousness because I go to my Father. So when the Holy Spirit works, He not only exposes and convinces those outside of Christ that they're lost, and He's doing that right now. He's doing that to your heart. He's doing that to your spirit, and you need to respond today. But He also convinces people that Jesus Christ is right. Jesus Christ is righteous. Jesus Christ is the only one that has ever lived that was perfectly righteous. He did not sin. In fact, before his enemies in John chapter 8, he said, which one of you can convict me of sin? And Man, they were silent. Even his enemies could not find something against him to accuse him of that violated the law of God. Jesus was perfectly righteous. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, uh, sometimes teachers would grade on the curve. Did your teachers ever do that? When I was teaching, I didn't do it. It's too much work to grade those papers. But uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I appreciated teachers would do that. But it usually didn't help me out because we had one know-it-all in the class that would blow the curve. They just would, would ace the test, and it would ruin it for the rest of us. That is precisely what Jesus does. Jesus blows and busts the curve in this world. You see you might be better than me, I might be better than you. When we compare ourselves with one another, uh, one of us might shine, one of us may, may be dim, but God doesn't compare us with one another. God doesn't compare one human with the other. He compares him with the perfect standard of holiness, and only Jesus satisfied that. And what the Holy Spirit does is that the Holy Spirit convinces you that he is right, entirely pure. So, Everything Jesus said was entirely correct. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, he said, and many other things. He convinces us that all of his works were done in perfection, in purity. The Holy Spirit's doing that right now. And Jesus said, this is witnessed by the fact that I go to the Father. Now, you may have overlooked that, and we don't think too often about that, but we really should. Because to go to the Father, Jesus had to be raised from the dead. And he had to be acceptable back into heaven. And, and God, would never let a, uh, God would never let a fraud back into heaven. 
God would never allow an imposter into heaven. The fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and received back up into heaven means he was right. In other words, the Father was completely um, comfortable receiving Jesus back into heaven because Jesus was right. He accomplished his mission without any mistakes or sins. The Father accepts Jesus. Why haven't you? The Father has embraced Jesus. Why haven't you? If he's good enough for the Father, you would imagine he would be good enough for the entire world. But your sins keep you from God. That's why the Holy Spirit intervenes. And he seeks to inform you that Jesus Christ, and convince you, Jesus Christ is right above and beyond all the other alternatives. Well then, he acts as a prosecutor, he acts as defense, and then he acts as a jury foreman. Verse number 11 of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, when Jesus referred to the ruler of this world, he's always talking about Satan. That's uh, real clear from 2 Corinthians 4 and John chapter 12 and some other, uh, some other text as well. So he convinces you that the devil himself was judged. Now, this is all uh, not in the future tense. We think of when Christ comes, he'll judge the devil then. Now, actually, he'll sentence him. Satan has already been judged. He was judged in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And it was told what would happen to him in verse number 15. You will bruise the heel of Christ, but he will crush your head is what will happen. So Satan was judged in doom from Genesis chapter 3. And the Holy Spirit works to convince us of that. Well, what in the world are you talking about? How is that relevant? Oh, it's very relevant. What we have here is a greater than, lesser than argument. You've got to understand that if God has judged the devil who's greater than all humans, he will certainly judge those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, when he works in you, he gives you a sense of urgency to turn to Christ and to come to Christ. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, is the Holy Spirit working in you today? Well, let me tell you how you can tell. One is that you're paying attention. You see, if you're dead in trespasses and sins, then spiritually you're a corpse. Have you ever seen a corpse listen to anyone? If you're listening, that's a miracle. The Holy Spirit is intervening, and He's drawing you to listen to this message. So if you're listening, if you've ever said, I just need some peace, things are not right. Things are just not right with me. And you're not off accusing your wife or your children or your mother-in-law or you're not off accusing a boss or someone else. You realize things are not right with me. I'm not at peace. That's the Holy Spirit. He's convincing you. He is dealing with you. You may say, you know, the music's been happy today. I've been very encouraged by that. But at the same time, I've got to admit, I feel awful. And I don't know why. That's the Holy Spirit. And He's moving on you to bring you to Jesus Christ. Uh, that's another way you can know that he's working with you. And then if you say, you know what, I'm really starting to think differently about Christ and the Bible and sin and, and salvation, the cross. I'm starting to think differently about all of this. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And what God is doing is that he's drawing you and moving you by the Holy Spirit to come to Jesus Christ. Hey, would you just go ahead and seal the deal by giving your heart and life to Christ? It is God's will for everyone, including you, to give his or her life 
to Jesus Christ. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why God is working with you today. He's intervened supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Now, it might be gentle, but that doesn't make it any less supernatural. He has intervened with you because He would rather save than judge. That's what God wants to do with you today. And that is the first advantage that the Holy Spirit brings now that Christ is gone and He is here. It's unpleasant, but it's conviction. But there's a second thing found in this text as well. And that is the Holy Spirit guides disciples to truth that convict. Those who've come to Jesus Christ are always moved to the biblical truth that does convict the world. And there are several ways of describing this truth found in verses 12 through 15. Uh, first, it's emphatic. Oh, it's very emphatic. Uh, Jesus uh, says this in chapter 16, verse uh, 12 and 13, but uh, I want you to notice that he's been saying this all along in this one message. Uh, this is one message in John 16 that starts with John chapter 14. It's one sermon with three points or three chapters in our Bible. And look what Jesus says earlier in this same message in verse number 17 of John 14. John chapter 14, and let's actually look at verse 16 and 17. John chapter 14 and verse number 16. He says here, just a page back or so, in John chapter 14, verse 16, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So he emphasizes the truthful nature of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse number 26 in that same chapter. But the Helper, the Parakaletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So He is the God of truth, the Holy Spirit is, and He leads us into truth and teaches us and reminds us of the very words of Jesus Christ. Then look at chapter 15, verse 26. The third time in this sermon, Jesus has said this. A few uh, uh, verses down in the next chapter, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So there's a teaching, guiding, remembrance ministry in the Holy Spirit where he leads disciples into truth. And then Jesus picks this thought up again in verses 12 and 13. Look there with me. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. Four times in the same message, He repeats Himself. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and He guides disciples into truth. So the first thing is, this is emphatic. You cannot miss this and, and, and faithfully follow Christ. To faithfully follow Christ, you've got to have a hold of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially as you interact with biblical truth. So this is emphatic, but that's not all. It's timely. Verse number 12, Jesus said, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many truths I'd like to unveil to you, but you're not able to take them in right now. And so therefore, my revelation and my teaching of you has got to be progressive. 
And, and, and in other words, you disciples are going to get just as much as you can handle because you can't handle anymore. So in a lifetime, the Holy Spirit is always directing us and what we learn after we've known the Lord for many years is just as emphatic as what we learn when we first began to walk with Him. And that means this also. It is just as necessary to learn and to walk with God towards the later years of our life as it is to walk in the early days of life. Because He has more to say to us. And when we first started with Him, He had much more to say to us, but we couldn't bear it then. Hopefully, we can bear it now. So it is emphatic, and then it's timely, and then it's final. Verse number 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. All the truth we need to know is what Jesus taught His disciples. That's what we need to know. And after the last disciple died, revelation from God closed, and it closed completely. God is no longer engaging in revelation. Let me repeat. God is no longer engaging in revelation. Heretics in the 2nd and 3rd century, like Montanus, said that he did. And Mormons say that he has as well. Ladies and gentlemen, when the book of Revelation was inspired and the last period was put at the last sentence after the last word, the revelation of God ended. And there has been no more revelation from God since then. None. Now, oftentimes what God will do to the sensitive soul is that while He will not engage in revelation of any additional biblical truth, God will engage in illumination of what's already written. Oh yeah. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Do not add to his words, lest he prove you to be a liar. And then Revelation 22, 17. If any man add to these words, God will add to him the plagues which are written therein. So God is not engaging in any more revelation. Now, does God guide? Yes, but that's not revelation. That's not authoritative, inerrant revelation. Is God illuminating His people to what is written in the Word? And is He applying? Is He giving a personal word out of the written Word? Oh, yes, absolutely. But any more authoritative revelation that should be put on par with the Word of God, God ended that after the last apostle died and the book of Revelation came to a close. Because Jesus said, The Holy Spirit will guide you disciples, that original group, into all truth. Now, you know what that means. That truth became the New Testament. They heard it from the Spirit. They inscribed it. They wrote it down. And we've got it. And so, uh, he engages in final truth. But look at verse number 13 as well. That's not all. There's also prophetic truth. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, that's just like the book of 1 Thessalonians that talks about the great resurrection that's coming for all believers. Uh, that's like much of the book of Revelation where prophecy is unveiled. And so there is prophetic truth. And then verses 14 and 15 tell us the focus of this truth. He says here, he will glorify me. 
the entire New Testament and really the balance of the Bible was written to magnify and exalt Jesus Christ. It is Jesus' kind of truth. So Jesus promised disciples that the Spirit would guide them to all truth, and He did. They wrote it. Therefore, the New Testament is the final authoritative word, revelation, and document for the people of God. And we have absolutely no business coming up with spiritual impressions and expecting the entire church to follow them. We are not to say, God told me, and then, Im- and then impose such thoughts and notions on the people of God. We don't need to do that because they are found in the Word of God, and it's final. It's a faith delivered once unto the saints. So spoken truth here, Jesus is talking about, or written truth, that became written truth, the Holy Spirit would teach. And, and because this is in the context of conviction, you've got to know that spoken truth delivers convicting truth to those outside of Jesus Christ. So we take the truth of the Word of God, we declare it to the world, and that brings conviction. The preaching and the teaching and the quoting of the New Testament is the way to deliver the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why we've got a New Testament. It reminds me of uh, one woman, that uh, a chief of a tribe in Africa, who was interacting with a missionary. And she uh, met this missionary, and she came upon uh, the home of the missionary and found outside a tree where the missionary did some grooming. Lived in a hut, and there was a tree there where the missionary did some grooming. And from that tree was hanging a mirror. And she looked into the mirror, And she asked about it. She inquired of it. She said, what is that? He said, oh, that's simply a mirror. If you look at it, uh, you see your face in it. Well, she looked at it, and she couldn't believe what she saw at all. She said, I would like to have this. Uh, what, What must I give you? He said, you can have it for free. I have another one. So she took it, she threw it on the ground, and she broke it. And she said, I'll not have it making ugly faces at me again. It's the preaching and teaching of this truth that oftentimes engenders hostility and hatefulness. And that explains an awful lot of the criticism of the Christian church and preachers today. I've had times in my ministry where after the service, someone will uh, come and accost me and say, I didn't appreciate what you said today. I said, well, you know, get in line. It's long. (laughs) There's a lot of other people that didn't either, okay? I'm kind of used to it. Uh, Now, that's no excuse for obnoxiousness and rudeness at all. But uh, the truth is, is that we preach and teach the truth and just let the chips fall where they may. Preach and teach what the Scripture says in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the consequences with God. The cause to bring people to Christ, God will create a little pain in their spirit, their soul, and their mind to alert them that something is wrong. Hey, you, you, you know the problem with lepers? Lepers don't feel pain. They touch a hot stove, they may burn themselves and never know. They step on a rusty nail, they may not know. They are missing pain. And you know, pain is not a curse. Pain is a gift. It's a gift. In fact, Dr. Paul Brand, the late Dr. Paul Brand, wrote a book about it entitled The Gift of Pain, and he developed this notion from working in leper colonies around the world. 
It is a good thing to have pain. Because when you have pain, it tells you something is wrong. And some of that pain you're feeling today, that restlessness, that lack of peace, that confusion, that ability, inability to understand what's going on in your own life, that sense of guilt that you'd like to roll off your shoulder and roll off your soul, that is the Holy Spirit's way of gently creating some pain to get you to Jesus Christ. He's trying to work with you. He's trying to deal with you. He's trying to speak with you. And that's why we have got to be faithful to this word. Because without creating this gentle pain in souls by declaring the truth, well, they just go on without it. They don't know anything is wrong. Now, that leads me to this conclusion. In this sex-crazed generation, in this world where the LGBT community is on the ascendancy, in this world where moral failure is either celebrated or boring because it happens so often, in this world that is increasingly comfortable with damning and criticizing the Christian church for its faithful stand on the Word of God, let me urge you, you've got to maintain the truth and you've got to be the very best friend these have anywhere. You've got to be. In fact, I'd say to you, those who will stand on biblical truth and keep the full penelope of gospel truth in mind are the very best friends this generation has. Not those who will substantiate misunderstandings. Let me ask you something. Let's talk about the transgender issue for just a moment. Let's imagine you know a 23-year-old girl, and she weighs 65 pounds. And you see her standing before a full-length mirror, and she says, I feel so fat. Are you a friend if you agree with her? Yeah, you look kind of fat. And give her, put her on the Atkins diet? Is that friendship? Now, you might be entirely sincere. You may be marvelously compassionate, and I hope you are. Ladies and gentlemen, you do not, we do not do anyone a favor, and we certainly are not the best kind of friend whenever we mislead people in their error. The best thing you can do is not agree that that young, lady's uh, that young lady is fat. The best thing you can do is get her some help. And the same is true with someone struggling with transgender, same-sex attraction, no matter what it is. The best friends those communities have are people like this and in other places who will gently and kindly declare the truth of the Word of God and invite people to turn to Jesus Christ. Because it's not just this life. It's not just this life we've got to live. We've got to die one day and stand before a holy God and give an account. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. And we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. And that's what will matter. This life is merely a speck, and what we've done with the truth of Jesus Christ will determine what takes place in all of eternity. And so, I'd say to you today, while you may not struggle with some of the things we're talking about here, the Holy Spirit may be dealing with you about something else. Some moral irresponsibility. Some lying. He may be dealing with you about your lust. He may be dealing with you about pride and about arrogance. Sloth. 
uh, a variety of other things. He may be dealing with you. Take the pain, embrace it, and let the Holy Spirit turn you to Jesus Christ. I think the best way to explain this is to talk about two generals that had been battling each other with their respective armies, and one general defeated the other. And the defeated general came to the quarters of the victorious general and announced, I am here to negotiate the terms of my surrender. And about that time, the victorious general appeared and said, No, I'm here to give you the terms of your surrender. And that is what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't negotiate. Jesus doesn't bargain. He is the master and he is the Lord, and he announces the terms of surrender. May I suggest to you, I surrendered to him many years ago, and I haven't regretted it one day of my life. You know, there is one thing I've regretted, I have to be honest. I regret that I didn't do it sooner. I really do. How about you not have that? Today, your king says, these are my terms. James uh, 4, 6 God opposes the proud. He battles them. He fights with them. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Can you humble yourself today? Can you humble yourself today? That's one term. And and then the Scripture says that Jesus said, um, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. Can, Can you vociferously reject and hate a life that you've had outside of Christ? Hate the choices you've made that kept you from Jesus. Hate the unbelief. Just turn it down. Despise it. Can you do that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you come clean before God today and confess that you've sinned and violated the law of God? Can you do that? Can you say the same thing about it that God does? Can you do that? And then Jesus also said, or Paul said about Jesus, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Entrust yourself to Him. And then Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Let me put it simply. Jesus announces the terms of your surrender. Are you humble? Are you willing to turn away from a life outside of Christ? Can you get clean before God, get honest with God? Will you trust the death and resurrection of Christ and call on Him today? If you will, God promises he will come through that's why he's creating the stir in you this morning that he's creating well i want to pray for you and after i pray for you we're going to sing a song and our staff will be here in the front we're going to invite you to come and make that right with god perhaps you already have but god wants you here at beach haven and to become a part of this church we'd love to have you and we want you here now there's a cost you're gonna have to live for jesus and abandon everything for him and if you will you come on Maybe God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. It's in your heart, and you know it's from the Holy Spirit to share this truth as a life's vocation, and God's calling you to do that. Maybe there's some other need that you've got, and you need to come to the altar and bow it all before God. You're free to do that, and we'll let you do that. Would you quickly stand with me, please, real quietly, and let me pray for you.